Welcome, everyone. My name is uh, Pastor Alberto. I serve here as the lead pastor of this church. And if this is your first time visiting us uh, in person or online, I want to say welcome. Thank you so much for carving time out to, to be here on this uh, Sunday morning. Uh, now, I know uh, maybe depending on, on how you grew up, uh, Easter Sunday can mean a lot of different things for a lot of different people. Uh, just this last week, I was talking to one friend uh, who was raised in like the real South, like the Carolinas. And she said, what are we doing for Easter? And uh, Because for her, Easter meant like awesome dresses and a guy in a bunny suit and lots of extravagant all day cooking affair. And that's awesome. We're going to do that at one of your guys' house, but that's not happening necessarily today. And and another friend asked me, well, what is Easter Sunday going to look like? And I just felt the Lord put this on my heart uh, to do a regular Sunday. And the reason why is because we want this Sunday, if this is your first time here, to serve as an invitation to come be a part of what we do every single Sunday. So what does a normal Sunday look like for us? We, we gather up here and we worship in song and, and we sing sound, songs out loud, these lyrics that testify about the goodness and glory of God because there's something supernatural that happens when we begin to rehearse with our mouth who God is and what he's done for us that takes our attention off of ourselves and begins to stir our hearts to faith. We take these awkward long two, three minutes to meet and greet one another because we believe community is important. And uh, like good community, it's worth fighting for and getting to know one another. So we want to have time to ask meaningful questions like, what's your name? Where are you from? And how are you? Hoping that it would lead from not just friendship, but to family. And then we take time to look into this word uh, and, and, and let this word examine us and then apply it in our lives so that we could be so filled with God's grace and goodness that we leave out and begin to just overflow with what the Lord's doing in our life. And we come back on Sunday to get refilled again. And that's what's going to happen this morning. Uh, here at the Springs Church, we're passionate about one subject, and that's gospel transformation. Now, the gospel is the good news of the kingdom of God that testifies to all that Jesus has done and made available for us. And we're passionate about transformation because when you think about the world that we live in, I've never met anybody who said, I don't, I don't need change. I don't need transformation. Because when we examine our lives and we take a close examination of where we are, we all recognize that there's parts of our lives that need to be transformed. For some of us, we look at that bank account and we're like, man, prices are going up, cost of living is going up. Can those numbers go up? We want change in our bank account so that our life can change and we can experience a higher quality of life. Maybe you're like me and you you, you step on that scale two years later and you see that COVID did a work on you and you want to see those numbers on the scale change because that wasn't there before. And we want to see our physical health change. We want to see our mind change. We want to move away from illness and trauma and experience wholeness. And the reason why we want change and we want transformation is because when we truly examine ourselves, we realize that things aren't the way they're supposed to be, that there's something more. And the tension that that we find ourselves in is that we all want change, we all desire change, but we don't want anybody coming into our lives and changing us. We want change, we need change, but we don't want anybody coming in and changing us. And all the married men said, "Uh, good, you didn't respond, smart. We would much rather fix ourselves. And rarely do we want somebody to come in and change things about us, and that includes God. 
And when we examine the lives that we live, we know that this isn't necessarily the life that we want. We want to move away from pain. We want to move away from discomfort. We want to move away from hopelessness. We want to experience change and transformation. Yet there's this internal resistance that is keeping us from making progress. And this is the tension that you and I experience and live in, that we want more, we desire more, yet there's something inside of us that is pushing us back, that is keeping us from stepping into our potential and the life that God has called us to live. And my question this morning, I have a few, is why is that internal resistance present in our lives and can it be overcome? And second, it's Easter Sunday, so what does this have to do with Jesus rising from the dead? In order to answer these three questions, we are going to visit three places, three scenes if you're taking notes. The first one, the place where love began. Second, the place where joy was lost. Third, the place where hope is found. The place where love began the place where joy was lost, the place where hope is found. Will you pray with me? Father, as we go on this journey to visit these three scenes, I pray that you would be with us. Pray that you would open up our heart and our mind to receive your word. Uh, Lord, I praise you that you are the God who brings transformation and change, and uh, today's testimony is that new life will emerge, that hope will be found, that love will be experienced, and that grace will take over. I pray that you would go before us and prepare our hearts for that experience. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The place where love began is the first scene we're visiting. Uh, In order to unpack these questions, uh, we are going to visit or maybe revisit the oldest story ever told. Uh, In the oldest story ever told, we get a glimpse of how we were supposed to live. And this takes us to the very first page, very first verse of the Bible. So uh, here at the Springs Church, we're passionate about the Bible. We love the Bible. So uh, we want to put a Bible in your hands so you can read the scripture. So if you need a physical Bible, maybe you don't own one or you want to borrow one, if you would shoot up your hand and our team is just going to quickly put it in your hand. And I want to invite you to look at this word with me. And if you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you. Take it home, write your name in it, uh, use it because it is uh, God's gift to us. uh, And we're excited to gift it to you. So Genesis chapter one, uh, verse one, um, I'm going to make it really easy for you. Just go to page one. Uh, regardless of what Bible you're using, it it should be page one. Uh, And it says this in Genesis chapter one, uh, verse one. Uh, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These are the first words in the Bible. And I'm getting excited because they give us incredible insight into who God is and what he is like. The first observation we can make is that God is timeless. He is eternal. Uh, There's a beginning and then somehow God was before. For that, he was present before the beginning of all things. The second thing that we see is that he's the creator. Uh, He created the heavens and the earth. And as we continue to read in that chapter, he created the universe and everything in it. And the scriptures make it very, very clear that the world that we live in is not accidental. It didn't didn't just spring up out of nowhere. Rather, God created it. He put his thought into it. 
And God created all things, and that includes us, humans. In Genesis 1.27, it says this, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the question is, why did God create the world? And why did he put us in it? The answer to this specific question is what makes the Christian faith so profound and so unique. Because upon careful examination of the scriptures, we discover there is just one God. The scriptures make it abundantly clear there is one God, but within this God, there are three persons. This is where we get that doctrine of the Trinity. You may have heard it. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit uh, existing eternally and equally uh, forever. And each person in this Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, has existed for eternity, hear me, in a perfect relationship. In a relationship uh, marked by mutual love and adoration and community and service towards one another. This is what makes love and community so intrinsic to God. That he just exists that way. Father, Son, Holy Spirit in union and in unity with one another for eternity. Now to help us understand why this matters, uh, author and pastor Tim Keller has this amazing quote. He says this. If God was unipersonal, then he would not have known love until he created other beings. In that case, love and community would not have been essential to his character. It would have emerged later. But God is triune, and therefore, love, friendship, and community are intrinsic to him and at the heart of all reality. So a triune God created us. But he would not have created us to get the joy of mutual love and service because he already had that. Rather, he created us to share in his love and service. Now, this is really, really good news. Because what this means is that the picture that we get of God in the first pages of the Bible is not some deity that is corrupted by power and hungry for worship and love. So he creates human beings that are going to be his slaves and he's so insecure that he demands them to worship him and love him. He already had that. He had that before he created us. He had that before the beginning of time. He existed in a perfect relationship of love and service and adoration in this community of the Trinity. So what this means is that when God creates He creates out of this overflow of his love that he wants us to share in and participate in. The image of God that we get in the scriptures is a God that is loving and generous, filled with joy and peace, and is overflowing with so much goodness that he wants to share it with his people. He wants to freely give it away. He wants to create an environment for you to participate and live in and experience this joy and love that he has had for all eternity. And he does that. He creates the universe. And he puts people in it to experience this love and community that he has within himself. To participate in a life that is exclusively marked with joy and peace and love. Why? Because they are fully alive and fully present with God. And he creates people. 
to share in this love, to run the world with, to enjoy creation and experience this harmony and family with him. Hear me. This is how you were designed to live. Fully present with God, fully loved, fully known. This is how it began in a world that was perfect. And hear me, how things begin matter. Uh, How I began my relationship with my wife extremely mattered, uh, or else we wouldn't be two kids into this. Uh, I had to be strategic and think this through, because if I had a bad start, this wouldn't go so well. So thanks be to God, he answers prayers. How things begin matter. Why? Because they give us insight into the intended direction where things are going. How things begin matter because they give us insight into the intended direction where things are going. So in the beginning, God created a world free from any form of brokenness. No concept of sickness, pain, or death. Nothing that would get in the way of experiencing life with God and having 24-7 access and connection to his love. You and I know all too well that that isn't the world that we live in. Instead of experiencing connection with God, we're more connected now than ever to the world and people around us. And yet we are no more satisfied and fulfilled. Instead, we are more anxious, more stressed, more hopeless, and more disillusioned with the concept of love. And instead of drawing near to God, we draw near to other things that we believe can transform us and fulfill us. And so instead of living our lives vertically towards the throne of God, we search horizontally for things that will fill us and satisfy us. This lifestyle seems like it's working for that person. Let me put all of my money, all of my energy, all of my effort into that so that I can become like them. Uh, this, this, this drug, this scene, this uh, uh, ideology, let me immerse myself in that because it gives the appearance of satisfaction, but you know it comes up completely empty. This relationship, this person. Okay, that didn't work. What about this career and this city? Okay, that didn't work. What about this country and this attitude? And, and it's this endless cycle of trying to find something that can fill this God-sized hole in our heart that only God himself can fill. How did we get here? Because we see a world that God created for us to be fully known and loved by him as we're fully present. It seems like now there's more distance than ever. And we don't see the fruit of joy, peace, and love around us. We see tons of destruction and warfare. It's it's evident. We see broken families and the effects of fatherlessness and motherlessness rampage through our city. And instead of seeing harmony and connection, we see brokenness. To answer this, we're going to visit the place where joy was lost. Just a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 3, the enemy, also known as the devil, comes in the form of a serpent to fulfill his agenda. It's simple. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy anything that God's doing. Uh, In this case, he wants to steal, kill, and destroy this perfect relationship that humans have with God. And how does the devil intend to disrupt Adam and Eve's perfect relationship with God? The way most relationships end up in ruins, by creating a relational breach of trust. 
And here's how the story plays out in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is what is known as the fall of man. So what's happening here? Well, like we said, all good relationships are built on trust, and Adam and Eve's relationship with God was built on trust, with the foundation being love, fully known, fully loved by God. And the enemy comes in to create a, 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 a relational disruption by saying, did God really say you can't eat of that tree? Now, this tree of knowledge of good and evil is the only thing that's off limits in God's created world. Uh, and so all we have to do is flip back a few pages to find out that God really did say that. But the serpent produces an effective lie because it has some seeds of truth in it. And the lie that the enemy is trying to implant is the idea that God is withholding something. And whenever you consider your life and you consider the series of events that led to your greatest failures, that led to your greatest moments of heartbreak and disruption and and brokenness, it's not that God led you there. It's that oftentimes we bought into this idea that God was withholding something back from us. And so what do we do when we believe that lie? We go after it using our own effort and power and energy to seize what is ours and create a world for us that is for our maximum pleasure instead of God's goodness and glory. And the Bible calls that idolatry. And it's the exact opposite way uh, that God intended and created for us to live. That's why anytime we live for ourselves, yeah, you'll have temporary moments of pleasure and satisfaction and, and maybe you'll check off some goals off your list, but at what cost? Losing your family, burning bridges in your relationships, sinking down further into a spiral of hopelessness. And and the scriptures are there to remind us that whenever we pursue a life for ourselves, it never ends up well. And if you think you can be the exception, the whole Old Testament is there to show you that you're not. And so we live in this chaos where we think we know what's best for us because sin has implanted this mechanism in our heart that has caused us to believe we maybe do know what's best for us. The serpent produces this effective lie, and as we said earlier, God is a generous God. He gives them everything in the garden with the exception of one tree. And guess what? They don't even need that tree. Forget that tree. There's plenty of other ones. Do whatever you want in the rest of the universe. But he says, no, you need that one. God is withholding that one from you. Go get it for yourself. And God has withheld nothing except that because God knew that that tree, the knowledge of good and evil, would bring about their death and destruction if it was consumed. And guess what? God gives them a generous command not to restrict them but to protect them. 
And friend, if you believe God's commands are restrictive, I believe that's also a lie that the enemy has implanted from keeping us from tasting the fruit of obedience to the Lord. Because the commands of God are not restrictive, they're life-giving. They will protect you. They're there to form a hedge of protection around your joy and happiness. And in one moment, the enemy has planted a seed of doubt. Maybe you're right. Maybe God doesn't say that after all. And unbelief leads to mistrust. A false belief takes over. And now they've exposed themselves to a world of brokenness, pain, agony, hopelessness, and death. Why? Because they've cut themselves off from the source of life. And sin has introduced two things. One is spiritual bondage, and we're all too familiar with that. Instead of experiencing freedom, we taste depression. Instead of experiencing connection, it seems like there's distance. Instead of joy and love being the norm, there's fractured hope and temporary satisfaction. And to make matters worse, the scripture makes it clear that the penalty of our sin is death. That it is producing a quality of life known as death and ultimately leading to us ceasing experiencing life. And now death is an enemy that we all live with because we've cut ourselves off from the source of life. Before there was a world filled with relational unity, all aspects of creation in harmony with one another. Now all of that is gone. Disordered desires, normal. Broken lives, normal. Broken relationships, normal. Trauma, illness, loss, pain, physical death, all the consequence of sin. And the world tells us that's just the way it is. Learn to deal with it. This is a quality of life called death that God never intended to be the normal way of life. Theologian Alexander Shimon says this, every other religion, every other philosophy tries to deal with mortality by accepting it, trying to see death as natural. Schumann says, only Christianity proclaims it to be abnormal and therefore truly horrible. Death was never part of God's vision for our life. And this is the horrible reality that we live in, where most worldviews and religions and mystics and teachings say death is just something that we have to accept. The scriptures make it clear that death is wrong. It's unacceptable. The scriptures describe death as an enemy, and this enemy will ultimately be defeated. You see, the experience of love that we once had is gone. We're still fully known and we're still fully loved, yet we doubt it because we're not fully present. And this relational gap has been filled with all sorts of failed attempts to experience life in a thousand different ways, in a thousand different places, in a thousand different spaces, only to come up empty, searching for hope, searching for meaning, searching for purpose and passion, searching for something that would fill this heart. Joy as it was lost in the beginning has been lost. Where do we go from here? Now remember, how things begin matter. In the beginning, God created. Life was intended to be lived out in the context of being fully known and fully loved by God as we were fully present with him. And the story of the Bible is God getting back what was already his. 
God gathering his children who were lost and enslaved to sin, oppressed by the broken forces of the world, and taking people who are living in the world, experiencing a quality of life that is marked by hopelessness, despair, death, and transferring them to his kingdom. A kingdom of life and abundant joy. A kingdom of being uh, fully present with God because we have access and connection to him. How things begin matter. And Jesus, the Son of God, the God-man, begins his ministry in a remote region that is known as the region and shadow of death. The region of Israel that is dominated by the Roman Empire, this region that was known as the breeding ground for oppression and death because historically that's all they had ever known. When the neighboring enemies would come in to attack Israel, where would they begin? The region and shadow of death, a.k.a. Galilee. And Jesus arrives into this place that is marked by true hopelessness and darkness. And how does he arrive? As the light of the world. Why? Because he's dispelling the darkness that has covered the world. He is reversing the effects of sin. He's raising the dead, healing broken lives, restoring the dignity and value of citizens who have been rejected by society. He is making individuals whole again who've been broken by sin. He is inviting people to experience life with God and become a kingdom citizen. And he is moving towards the cross to defeat the final enemy, death. And with that in mind, let's visit the place where hope is found. Matthew 28, verse 1 through 4 says this. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. And this is where we find ourselves. Three days earlier, Jesus hung on the cross and died. It's what we reflected on this past Friday, Good Friday. What was the most gruesome Friday in history turns out good, and we're going to see why. But in this moment, the hopes of men and women who have placed their trust in Jesus have also died. A man claiming to be God has arrived on the scene, and you take his word for it because he's walking on water, raising the dead, multiplying food, doing the thing that you would expect God to do. And he says, follow me. And the rest of the world is looking at you like you just, you know, uh, contributed your, your, your whole savings and have enlisted to be a part of this guy's cult and people think you're crazy. And you look at them and say, no, I'm not. He is truly God. And they're looking at you and saying, where is he now? He's died. And so their hopes have died. Their sense of meaning and purpose in life has died. And so these women, as it was custom, go to the tomb to prepare the body with the ceremonial spices and oils, and they go and do just that. But upon arriving, they find a stone to the tomb rolled back, and immediately they're gripped by fear and anxiety. Why? Because it, wasn't, it was a common experience for grave robbers to come in and steal the body and take any precious treasured possessions that they might have been buried with. And they're thinking to themselves, somebody has stolen the body of Jesus, and when they get in there, this is what happens next. They find an angel hanging out in the tomb, and it says, The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. Now, this is significant because there's been um, three explanations that history has tried to give to explain the empty tomb. The first is that the Roman officials broke in overnight and stole the body. 
the second is that Jesus actually didn't die on the cross. Uh, he was moments away from dying. They buried him prematurely. He unwrapped himself and escaped. And third, the women in their, in their grief uh, arrived at the wrong tomb. But God foreknew that these would be our human responses, so he sends a supernatural angel to give us the explanation as God's witness. He is not here, and the reason he is not here is not because his body has been stolen. It's not because you're at the wrong tomb. It's not because Jesus fled by night. The reason he's not here is because he has risen from the dead. Do not be afraid. See the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, on your way there, he's, he's going to go before you to Galilee. There you'll see him. I just love that. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear, as you should if you experience an encounter with an angel, and great joy as hope begins to rise. Maybe he's not truly dead. And they ran to tell his disciples. The angel opens the tomb, not to let Jesus out, but to show the woman that he is no longer inside. Why? Because he's risen. His body is not stolen. He has not escaped death. He has truly rose from the dead. And what is incredible about this testimony is that it comes from women. And the reason why this is significant, uh, as author Michael Green points out, uh, this is what he says. This is simply astounding. Women counted for little in both Jewish and Greco-Roman circles in those days. They were nobodies. They were goods and chattels uh, uh, treated as possessions. They could, in some circumstances, be offered for sale. They cannot bear witness in a court of law. Hear me, lean into this. And God perpetrates the supreme irony of having two women As the first witness of his son's resurrection, Jesus could have been born in an obscure province that nobody could have heard of. Jesus has been born of an obscure province nobody heard of. His genealogy contains various disreputable females who might be considered liabilities in any family. He worked as a jobbing builder where nobody, nobody would have dreamed of looking for him. And he went to the cross, the place associated with God's curse, not God's approval. And now the last and greatest surprise is that God allows the first witnesses of his resurrection to be women. If anyone was going to fabricate the story of the resurrection, would they have made the witnesses Women, of course not, he says. Only God could have dreamed of a remarkable thing. But this is the supreme irony, the supreme humor, the supreme surprise value, uh, the supreme surprise of Almighty God. That when he does his greatest act since the creation of the world in raising the son from the dead, he attests it through the lips of those who were so widely discounted. Magnificent, he says. The hoped-for freedom has finally arrived. Victory over sin and death has arrived. And this hope and this victory has arrived in an unexpected way. Jesus comes into the capital city, and locals think he's going to start a revolution and overthrow Rome. But Jesus is bringing a revolution of the heart, not of swords and chariots. And in going after the heart, Jesus goes after sin, and he dies on the cross as our substitute. Why? So that our sins that create spiritual bondage 
bondage and condemnation and separation and distance and death could be transferred to him. And he takes the penalty for our sin. And then he transfers his life to us. The life of the triune God that is marked by love and joy and hope. The life of God. Transferred to us. Where is this hope found? A resurrected Savior. And and this hope is is real. This hope is confirmed by none other than the risen Jesus. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. Or their first century of like, what's up with it? Good to see you guys. Whatever would have been their lingo. And they came up and, and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And Matthew says, he, they took hold of him. He wasn't a ghost. You could touch him. There was flesh and bone. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. When Jesus says, do not be afraid, he's accepting their worship. And one thing that the scriptures make absolutely clear is that no one is to be worshiped except God. And who is standing before them? The God man, the creator, their savior. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Hear me, friends. The presence of Jesus turns fear into worship. The presence of Jesus turns despair into hope. The presence of Jesus transforms everything. Now, there's a lot of compelling evidence for the resurrection. Uh, As we've discussed, women being the first eyewitness accounts, hundreds of other eyewitnesses, the verified empty tomb. But I believe there's one piece of evidence that is more compelling that history testifies to, and that's this, the transformation of Jesus' followers. The transformation of Jesus' followers, his disciples, his followers who put their trust in the risen Christ, the resurrected Jesus, suffered all sorts of gruesome persecution because of their allegiance to Christ. Persecution and suffering that could have been lifted if they denounced the risen Christ, but they couldn't because they saw him, they felt him, they touched him. James and John Two followers of Jesus, they were known as sons of thunder because of their aggressive, fiery temperament, become known as the apostles of love. Simon Peter, the inconsistent, fickle leader, good with Jesus, not good with Jesus another day, becomes a rock-like man of stability whose fearless witness builds the early church. The 11 disciples who were hiding away in a room because they fear that what just happened to Jesus is going to happen to us because we've showed all our cards. They know that we're with them. And if they see us, we're next to hang on that cross. And they're hiding in a room for fear of death. Jesus walks through the the wall because he can do that. And they have an experience with the risen Christ. And guess what? Every single one of them becomes an unstoppable force for Christ. And not even physical punishment and persecution could stop their allegiance to Jesus. And they would experience persecution. All but a few would die because of their commitment to Christ. This historical event, yes, it is historical, but hear me, church, it is personal because the same God uh, who rose from the dead, the spirit of God working at him, that resurrection power is available to us today so that we can move from uh, accepting this as a historical event to the personal testimony of our lives. 
that the resurrected Jesus has met us and is resurrecting us to new life. You see, when Jesus, when we think about this, we've just covered a little bit of scripture. A few questions that could come up is, well, why does this matter and what does this mean for you and I? And I want to bring your attention back to the questions that we posed at the beginning. Why is there an internal resistance that keeps us from changing? And what does it have to do with Jesus rising from the dead? See, when Jesus dies on that cross, he takes upon himself the sins of the world to settle a debt of sin. He takes upon himself our sins and our spiritual bondage, and he subjects himself to death. And when Jesus rises from the dead, he emerges from the grave as one who has settled a debt of sin, uh, like a prisoner who has done their time and is now a free person. And resurrection is supernatural. So that means there are supernatural implications here. Jesus rising from the dead means that the punishment we deserve because of our sins has been dealt with and transferred to Christ. Jesus rising from the dead, hear me church, means that the power of sin was not powerful enough to keep him in the grave. That means that Jesus has conquered the internal resistance of sin and anything is possible. Jesus rising from the dead means that every single barrier has been removed and access to the Father, as we once had in the beginning, has been restored. You see, resurrection hope is our hope for transformation. And resurrection hope is found in Jesus. And the good news of the kingdom of God is that the empty tomb reminds us that our circumstances don't dictate our hope. And that our experiences don't take away our hope. And you may feel empty, yet we don't need to depend on the stuff of the world and the stuff out there to transform our heart and create progress in our life that we're satisfied with. Rather, we can experience transformation. We can experience change because it's not dependent on what's available out there. It is found in the resurrecting power of Jesus at work in us. It's found in God's spirit filling our heart and taking us back to the place where love is found. Being fully known, fully loved, fully present with him. Hope isn't defined by death, church. Joy isn't defined by death. Because the tomb is empty, anything is possible. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we too can rise to new life. Because Jesus has conquered the internal resistance of sin, transformation is possible The resurrection of Jesus means that you and I can experience radical transformation, defiant joy, and defiant hope. Last question, how do we get in on this? Through faith in Christ. Faith is the act of transferring our trust to Jesus. Transferring our own efforts uh, to change ourselves and our circumstances. Transferring our entire lives to him and giving it away to his power and control. And through faith, the scripture says that we participate in his death, resurrection, and new life. Through faith, we can turn away from the internal resistance of sin. And through faith, we can be raised with Jesus. Through faith we can experience transformation in Christ. Let's close in prayer as we reflect on this.